You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. I'll explain in a moment why we're in Matthew this morning rather than in the Gospel of John. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. I prepared this message the week before we went on the mission trip because I was doing work all week down there and knew last week I wouldn't have any time to study uh, while we were on the trip. I did some reading about uh, a bird that has been intrigued me all of my life. And uh, I love this uh, particular creature, as many of you do. It becomes a symbol of liberty, of freedom, of power, and of strength in our nation. The eagle. Something I came across that was interesting to me was how the eagle mom uh, treats her children. We can learn some lessons from the eagle. And one of them is in the way that the, the mother eagle deals with her, I guess, what, eaglets? Her little eagles? Her baby eagles after they are hatched? This is what she does when she is getting ready to hatch the eggs or to have the eggs. She begins to build a nest. And she'll build it on the high mountain cliff or at the very highest point of a tree somewhere away from all of the predators and things of the ground and she will begin building this nest with sticks and stones and sharp kinds of objects and after the structure is completed then she'll take feathers out of her own wings out of her own body and feathers that she can gather around and also the fur of animals that she has killed for food and she will line that nest of sticks and stones and sharp objects beneath it she will line it with those feathers and with that fur And in that place, then the eggs are hatched. And they are there in that place of comfort for a while. But there comes a time when the the mother eagle begins to destroy the nest. She begins with her beak and with her sharp talons to strip away the fur and the feathers and the things that are the cushion in the nest. And the baby eaglets, the little birds, are left not in a place of comfort anymore, but they're left in that place with all of those sharp objects that are making the nest very uncomfortable, and about the same time, then the mother eagle ceases to feed the baby eagles. And with time, the combination of their growling stomachs and their need for food, plus the uncomfortableness of the nest with all the sharp sticks and stones and objects that she's built of the structure of the nest, in time, because of those two factors, then those little eagles will jump out of the nest and fly and they will begin to be able to fend for themselves and find food for themselves. And we look at that from the human perspective, and it almost looks cruel to us, doesn't it? But the mother eagle doesn't do it to be mean. She doesn't do it to be cruel. She does it in order to make those baby eagles grow to maturity to take care of themselves. Because it's probably true that as long as the nest was soft, and as long as mama was bringing food, then those babies would stay in that nest. Well, they were, even while they were full grown physically, they would be immature uh, in the fact that they could not fend for themselves. And so she does it in order to grow them out of the nest and in order to mature them. The father 
does some of the same kinds of things with us, his people. He does it with the trials and the storms and the tribulations, the things that he allows to come into the life of the believer. And his purpose for that is to grow us to maturity. A couple of weeks ago in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we studied where Jesus put the disciples through a test. It was the test of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that. And the scripture even tells us that Jesus asked Philip this question, where are we going to get food for all these people in order to test him, in order to find out where Philip was in his growth process and all of the other disciples. And Jesus did it for the purpose of stretching these disciples to a new level of faith, of a new level of being willing to trust him to do what he was able to do. But they failed the test. You remember we talked about that. They failed the test. And so immediately after that, in John's gospel, Jesus puts them through another test. But they failed the first one with the feeding of the 5,000. I imagine that uh, it was a little bit like the college student that I heard of who made a zero on a test. I know none of you ever did that, but this particular guy made a zero on a test. And he went to the professor and he complained and he said, Prof, I don't understand. I don't deserve a zero. And the professor said, I know you don't, but it was the lowest grade that I could give you. <laughs> I'm sure that's something like what Christ felt like with those disciples. When they failed the test of being willing to trust Jesus to do whatever it took to feed that 5,000. So immediately, what the Lord Jesus does, and this is interesting, the sequence in Scripture. And all the Gospels put this in the same sequence. It's interesting that immediately after that test, when they failed that test, and the Lord Jesus allowed them to go into a storm. And he allowed them to go into that storm for the purpose of teaching them to trust him. Of teaching them a very, very valuable lesson. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God does that with his people? Do you believe that sometimes he allows us to go through a storm in order to teach us, to mature us, to grow us up because the Father loves us? Not to destroy us, never to destroy us. The Father never does things to destroy his people. But periodically, he allows us to enter into these tests. He allows us to enter into these storms because he desires, like the mother eagle, to grow us up, to get us out of the nest, to get us to where we were able to grow to a position of maturity. The Apostle James says that we are to count it all joy when we encounter these various trials. Why? Because trials are fun? No, not on your life. But because, he says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that leads to maturity. And so we are, we are able then to look at the test. We are able to look at the storm with a new perspective. Not that it's an enjoyable experience in the time, but that we know that God the Father can work that around and desires to work that around into something good in our lives. And that is that we grow into maturity. So Jesus uses a storm to bring these disciples one step further in the process of maturity. Now, John records this right after the feeding of the 5,000. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, John's purpose is not so much to give all of the intricate details of each thing that happens, but John's purpose is to record the miracle itself to point specifically to Jesus. And so as John records some of the miracles, he doesn't bother with giving a lot of the intricate details because that's not the purpose for which he writes his gospel. But Matthew, as Matthew records this same event that John records in the sixth chapter, Matthew goes into much more detail because his purpose for writing his gospel is a little bit different than John's. And since Matthew goes into much more detail, I wanted us to look at this story this morning 
out of Matthew's account, not out of the Apostle John's account. I've titled this message this morning, I've preached on this passage before, but I've titled this message this morning, Things to Hold On To in the Storm. Things to Hold On To in the Storm. Now, if any of you have ever been in a storm on the sea, you know that's the first thing you do, is you grab something to hold on to. Perhaps some of you have, perhaps some of you haven't. I have been. Having lived on the southeast coast, the Gold Coast of Florida for three years, spent a lot of time in the water. A good friend of mine who was a member of my church at one time had a little 24-foot Formula V boat. Now he's gone a little bit bigger and he's got a little bit nicer, but at that time he just had a 24-foot Formula V. It was an open thing. We went across the water to Bimini Bahamas one time. The water was smooth on our way over there. We had two or three days sleeping on the boat, scuba diving, fishing. I'd love to tell you the story about it sometimes. Just come and ask me. Had a great time. We left Bimini Bahamas. By the way, that's where Gary Hart got in trouble on the monkey business. We left Bimini Bahamas on our way back to Fort Lauderdale, and the water was smooth as glass. Just a beautiful day. We got about 15 miles out into the ocean, and as it can happen quickly in the ocean, a storm came up. And before we knew it, we were in waves and rollers that from the bottom of the, of the bottom of the thing to the top was 20 to 25 feet. And we were in a little open 24-foot Formula V with a couple of outboard motors on the back that we were praying to God we're not going to flood out and we're going to get us back to Fort Lauderdale. The first thing that I did is start grabbing for something to hold on to. Anything I could hold on to in the storm. Because you see, when you're in a storm, you've got to have something to hold on to. And if you don't have anything to hold on to, then you're probably not going to survive the storm. And so I've entitled this message this morning, Things to Hold On To in the Storm. And let me give them to you as quickly and as much detail as I can as our time will allow us. Things to hold on to in the storm. First of all, when you find yourself in a storm, hold on to the complete providence of God. Hold on to the complete providence of God. Matthew chapter 14 Verses 22 through 24. And it says immediately, in other words, right after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went to the mountain himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. Now Matthew tells us that Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately told the disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now verse 24 tells us that after they'd been out there a while, on their way across, they began to be battered by the winds and the waves. And in fact, he gives us the, the intricate little detail here that the winds were contrary. In other words, they were rowing and they were trying to go against the winds. And you can imagine the, the waves coming over, sloshing over the boat while they're straining at the oars, trying to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But notice this. Verse 22 says that Jesus made them get in the boat. That indicates to me, first of all, they didn't particularly want to, okay? And they probably didn't. It was getting dark. They say, Jesus, what do you want us to go to the other side of the sea tonight? Let's just sleep on this side. Tomorrow we'll go to the other side. But, and he said, besides that, why aren't you going to go with us, Jesus? And so Jesus is making them get in the boat. He's pushing them into the boat. And that is, <laughs> that's a command. It's like the mother eagle. He's pushing them out of the nest. It says, Jesus made them get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus knew a storm was coming? 
Do you believe for one moment that he who was able to look into the hearts of people and know what was there immediately, do you believe for a moment that Jesus didn't know that when he sent these disciples into this boat that he was sending them right into the midst of a storm? I'll guarantee you the Lord Jesus knew what he was doing. And he sent them, he made them go into the boat and into the storm. Now I've heard people, and you have heard them as well, say that if you just love the Lord Jesus, if you just are a believer in Christ and you're walking in obedience to Christ, then everything is going to come up roses. And everything is going to be fine. And that God intends for all of his people to be healthy and wealthy. I wish that were true from the human perspective, but the scripture says something exactly opposite. In fact, do you know the thing that God the Father is most interested in more than every, anything else? The thing that God is most interested in more than anything else, not is that we be wealthy, not even that we always be healthy, but that we be holy. That is what God the Father is up to. That is his number one thing on his agenda, that we be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And so periodically, the Father may allow a storm to enter into our experience in order to mature us, in order to weed out some of the, from some of the chaff that is in our life. He uses the storms of life for the purpose of conforming us and maturing us into the image of Jesus. Now, storms don't always come because of sin either. Storms don't always come, and, and Job's counselors told him that, and you've had people tell you that before. Well, when some difficulty comes in your life, then immediately, well, there must be something wrong with you. There must be something you did volitionally that caused this storm to come on your life. That's not always true. As a matter of fact, Job is a supreme example. Job entered in tremendous storms, tremendous trials, but the Scripture says that Job was a righteous man. These disciples were being obedient to Christ. They were doing what Jesus told them to do. They got in the boat. Jesus said, get in the boat. They said, okay, we'll get in the boat. Maybe after a little bit of shoving, but he got them in the boat eventually. They were being obedient, and by being obedient, they ended up in the midst of a storm. So storms are not always because of sin. There are two kinds of storms. There are correcting storms, and there are perfecting storms. Now, if you don't hear anything else today, you need to hear that. There are correcting storms, and there are perfecting storms that God allows in our lives. Jonah got into a correcting storm, didn't he? <laughs> God said, go to Nineveh, and, God, and Jonah said, not on your life. I'm not about to. And he began to run. And so the scripture says that God brought up a great wind, and he caused this storm to come into Jonah's life. And a few other folks got kind of brought into the thing too. Why? Because God had a purpose of bringing Jonah back into obedience. And so Jonah found himself in a correcting storm. But there's another kind of storm. It's a perfecting storm that sometimes, periodically, along the way, the Father just chooses, the Father in His sovereign purpose and in His providence chooses that it's time to grow up a little bit. And so the Father allows a difficulty, the Father allows a storm to enter into our experience, not for discipline, but for perfection, in order that He might take something out of our lives that is not pleasing to Him, or He might bring us to a new level of faith and trust in Him that we might grow more in the image of the Lord Jesus. But listen to this. This is the thing to hold on to when you're in a storm that it's all in the midst of God's providence. It's all in the midst of God's providence. He is controlling and is in control of the storm. So when you're in a storm... Hold on to the complete providence of God. If these disciples had done this, 
If they had remembered, oh, this same Lord Jesus that we just saw feed 5,000 people, this man that we walked with, that we saw healed the, the royal official son from 20 miles with just a spoken word, this Jesus is the one that told us to get in the boat. He's bound to know what's going on to us so we can just trust Jesus. Had they just done that, it would have given them a tremendous amount of security in the midst of the storm. The second thing to hold on to is not only the complete providence of God, but hold on to the constant prayer of Jesus. Verse 23 of Matthew 14 tells us that after he sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus went aside to pray. After he had sent the multitudes, after he would sent the disciples into the boat, then Jesus went aside to pray. I wonder what Jesus was praying. Wouldn't you have liked to have heard one of the prayers of Jesus? I wonder what Jesus prayed as he went aside to the mountain. I don't know. But I have an idea from what the Scripture tells us in other places and from what the example of Jesus is many times in other places in the Word. You see, Jesus had just sent those disciples into the storm, hadn't he? We accept the fact that Jesus knew that he was sending them into a storm. In fact, verse 25 tells us it was already the fourth watch of the night. Now, folks, the fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So they've already been in the water a good while. They've already been rowing. But between 3 and 6 a.m., it tells us, in fact, Mark in his account tells us that Jesus looked and saw the disciples straining at the oars. Now, folks, get this picture. It's pitch black. There aren't any harbor lights on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. It's a storm, so it's probably clouded over. There aren't even any stars that are visible. The moon is not shining. The disciples have been straining at the oars for hours, so there are a good many stadia away from the shore, a few miles out. Yet Mark tells us that it's pitch black, all of that, and that Jesus Christ saw them straining at the oars, and he is in the mountain place praying. What is he praying about? I believe that he's praying for those disciples, as he often did. You remember the high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus said, I pray, Father, not that you take them out of the world, but that you deliver them from the world. I pray, Lord, that you send them out, even if you have sent me, that as you and I are one, Father, I pray that they be one together and that they'd be one in us. Jesus often prayed for the disciples. When you're in a storm, now listen to this, when you're in a storm, hold on to that. Hold on to the complete providence of God, but also hold on to the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you. He knows your storm. He knows where you are, and he is constantly interceding for you. Look at a couple of passages of Scripture with me, if you would. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4, 13. If you don't get there quick enough, let me read it to you. Listen. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Did you hear that? There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open and are laid bare before him with whom we have to do. In other words, no matter where you are, no matter what your situation, no matter what your storm is, you're not hidden from him. If Jesus can see them in the dark many miles from the shore and can see them straining, then Jesus can see where you are today. Now listen to what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 7, 
verse 25. Do a little Bible drill in here. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You hear that? The inspired word of God says that Jesus now, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, ever lives, he continues to live, and he never ceases to make intercession for us, his people. Hold on to the intercession, the prayer of Jesus in the midst of your storm. There's a passage that for many years bothered me, and I've come to understand it in the last year or so, I think. I never understood it before. It's a passage in Luke 22. It's the time when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you and it has been granted. Did you hear that? He said, the enemy has asked permission to sift you, just like he did with Job. He has asked permission to sift you and it has been granted. But then Jesus went on and said, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and that when you have recovered, you will strengthen your brethren. Now listen to that. Jesus told Peter two things there, didn't he? He said, you're going to be sifted because permission has been granted, but I've prayed for you, so don't sweat it because you're going to make it. Isn't that great? Peter didn't believe either thing, did he? But the scripture says that before the night was over, Peter denied Jesus three times, and then he remembered what Jesus said, the scripture says, that he was going to be sifted. But in fact, what Jesus prayed came to pass, didn't it? Peter's faith ultimately did not fail. As a matter of fact, he grew from that experience, and that pride that Peter had was stripped away from him, and Peter went on to be the great apostle who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the prince of the apostles. You see, Jesus interceded for him in the midst of his storm, and Peter came through it. So when you're in the midst of a storm, folks, hold on to that. The complete providence of God, but also the intercession of the Lord Jesus, he ever lives to intercede. Thirdly, hold on to the continuing presence of Jesus. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, listen, he came to them walking on the sea. It's a little bit dramatic, isn't it? That's a bit circus, isn't it? In the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 a.m., it says he came walking out to them on the sea. Now, even before he came to them, though, Mark has assured us that Jesus was watching them. He was praying for them. He knew what was going on, but now he goes out to them walking out on the sea, out on the waves. Now, here's a thought. What was it that made the disciples afraid? What was it that they were afraid of out there in the boat? They were afraid of the water, weren't they? You're in a storm. You're not afraid of the wind. You're not even afraid of the rain. You've been through rainstorms before. You're afraid of the water because it's the water that can get you, right? It's the waves that are going up and down and maybe the seasickness that you got to go through before it gets you. And then you pray, oh God, let me die. But you're afraid of the water. That's the same thing that is true with the disciples. The, they were afraid of the waves. They were afraid of the waters. They were afraid that their boat was going to be swamped and every single one of them was going to drown. It's interesting to me 
that the very thing that the disciples were afraid of was what brought Jesus Christ to them. What was their trouble, in other words, which was the water, the waves became the channel by which Jesus Christ came to them. Why did Jesus come walking on the water? Why didn't he just speak the word? And he can be there sitting in the boat next to him. Peter says, Jesus, what are you doing? Why didn't Jesus do it that way? Why didn't Jesus take the time to walk a couple of extra miles and to do it walking across the water? Here's an important spiritual truth, folks. That in the storms of life, it is often when we meet Jesus in a new and a fresh way of his presence and his power. Now get this. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the next point. But it was the very thing that they were afraid of that became the channel by which Jesus revealed himself to them. It became the channel by which Jesus came to these disciples and they experienced the presence of Jesus in a new and a fresh way in the midst of the storm. I love Andre Crouch's old song. You remember the old, the, the black uh, contemporary gospel singer, one of the very first contemporary gospel singers in the late 60s, early 70s, Andre Crouch. had a song that was one of my favorites through it all. And Andre says this, he said, I thank him for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he's brought me through. For if I had never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in Christ could do. Do you hear that? I thank him for the mountains. Oh, God, thank you for the mountains. But I thank him for the valleys. And I thank him for all of those storms he's brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, if I'd never had a storm, if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in Christ could do. And so the chorus says, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. You see, it is in the storms that sometimes we experience the fresh presence of God. Psalm 34, verse 18. Listen to what David says. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Listen, the Lord is near to the, bro to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know when David wrote that psalm? It's instructive to study the history of each psalm and know at what period in David's life he wrote it. David wrote the 34th psalm in the period when he was running for his life. He had been king and had been ousted. And now he was just trying to stay alive. And he says, near the brokenhearted and with those who are crushed in spirit. Do you remember the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When they're in the fiery furnace? you remember the story? And it says there was a fourth one that appeared in the midst of them. And it says this of that one that appeared in the midst of the fire with him. He was one as the Son of God. It was in the midst of the furnace that they experienced the, precious, the, the presence of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. The prophet says this. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Listen, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That had been a great verse for the disciples to have turned to that night on the storm, wouldn't it? 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. What's he saying? He's saying this, that when you are in the midst of the storm, I am with you. I have not forsaken you. It's in the storms of life sometimes that we begin to think that God the Father has forsaken us. But he said, I have not forsaken you, but I am near the broken hearted. Hold on to that when you're in the midst of the storm. Because it is often in the midst of the storm that you learn to experience the presence of the Lord Jesus in a way you never have before. Number four, hold on to the controlling power of Jesus. Verses 26 through 29. Jesus came walking to them, it says in verse 26. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, frightened, saying, it's a ghost. <laughs> they cried out of fear. It's funny to me. I, don't, I guess it wasn't funny to you. I were, oh, well, we're so much like them. I mean, it you would think that they would just expect that any time Jesus was going to be coming. But they looked like, yeah, it's a ghost. They had no idea that it was the Lord Jesus. But immediately Jesus spoke to them to keep them from jumping out of the boat, I guess. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It's like, I don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you walking on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I regret that we don't have time to cover the whole passage because it really does kind of get funny a little bit later on. But the point that I want to make here in verses 26 through 29, is that Jesus came walking on the water, just like I've made a moment ago. Jesus came walking on the water. It was a thing that they were afraid of that became the channel by which Jesus came to them. But again, let me ask the question, why didn't the Lord Jesus just speak? Why didn't he just speak and make it so? Why did he take the trouble to walk on the water? Here it is. Because by doing this, he communicated to them a very important truth. By putting the water under his feet, Jesus demonstrated that he was Lord of the storm. By Jesus walking on the water, Jesus demonstrated that he was Lord of the storm. It was the storm that frightened them. It was the water that frightened them. It was the waves that frightened them. And Jesus came walking on the storm on the waves to demonstrate to the disciples, this is no big shakes. This is no big problem. What are you sweating it for? I am Lord of the waves. I am Lord of the wind. I am Lord of the storms. In another place, Jesus spoke and quieted the storms. In this one, he just spoke and put them all the way to the other side. But Jesus demonstrated that he is Lord over the storm. John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He is Lord of the storm. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul says it another way. It says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you hear that? When you're in a storm, hold on to the complete providence of God. Hold on to the continuing prayers of Jesus. Hold on to the presence of Jesus, but hold on to his controlling power. Don't forget that he has put all things under subjection under his feet, and he is Lord over that storm. When you get in a storm, you need something to hold on to? Hold on to that one. He's Lord of the storm. He is Lord 
of the storm. And finally, and we'll close with this, I promise. Verse 22, hold on to his promise. Hold on to his promise. You say, where has Jesus made a promise in these verses of Scripture? Here it is. In verse 22, when it says he made them get in the boat to go to the other side. So wait a minute, that's a command. That's not a promise. It's both. Because his commands are always promises. He never commands what he does not also enable. Let me say that again. He never commands that he does not also enable. In the very command that Jesus gave to the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side, there was the promise inherent in that command that he intended that they make it to the other side. Remember, he said go over. He didn't say go under. <laughs> and I'm glad that he did. He said go over. He didn't say go under. And so in the command itself, Jesus gave a promise that he, his intention was that they make it to the other side. He never commands what he does not also give the ability to perform. You have his promise. He will never leave you or forsake you. You have his promise that he has called you to success. Not the world's definition of that, but to success in his kingdom. He has called you as you walk in obedience to be successful in his kingdom. The abundant life the anointed life, the spirit-filled life. That's the successful Christian life. He's called us to success. He hasn't called us to failure. And when we fail, it was because we failed to trust him. But in his promise that to go into all of the world, he has also given us the promise, I will not leave you or forsake you. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. His command is a promise. He gave the disciples a command, but in it was the promise. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher, who at one time was an agnostic, made a statement that I think applies in the storms. He said it this way, A glimpse is not a vision. Sound like a philosopher, doesn't it? Well, he goes on and tries to explain himself a little bit. He says, A glimpse is not a vision. But to a man on a mountain road at night... A glimpse of the next three feet of the road may matter more than a vision of the horizon. Did you get that? A glimpse is not a vision. But to a man who is walking on a mountain road at night, a glimpse of the next three feet may matter more than if he had a full vision of the horizon. Now, what's he saying? He's saying this, that when you're in a storm... God may not give you a picture of the horizon, but he will give you a glimpse of the next three feet. And in a storm, that means more than a vision of the horizon. Because when you're in a storm, a glimpse is sometimes all you can get. You need something to hold on to. You need something to grasp, something to give you stability when you're in the midst of a storm. Five anchors that God has given us from this experience with the disciples. And you know, the Scripture is not just written to be good history. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that all of these things were written for our instruction. So the Spirit of God allowed these things to be written for our instruction. There's something for us to learn from how Jesus dealt with these disciples. When you're in the storm, hold on to His complete providence. 
hold on to his continuing intercession. He ever lives to intercede. Hold on to his continuing presence because it is through that very storm, when you trust him, it is through that storm that he will come to you in a new and a fresh way. His abiding presence and power. Hold on to his controlling power because he is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord over the storm. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. He is the Lord over your storm. Hold on to his convincing promise. He's not said that he's called us to fail. He has called us to be victors. So you, when you're in the midst of the storm, it is not the Father's purpose for you to be overcome. It is the Father's purpose for you to overcome when his purpose is fulfilled then it is providence. He puts the storm in subjection beneath his feet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. That regardless of where we are, you see us, no matter how dark the night no matter how strong the waves and your omniscience, you know and you see and we praise you. But we must come to you this morning confessing to your Father that we are off to like these disciples who walked with you physically. We fail to trust you in the midst of our storms. Lord, we cry with the man who wanted to believe we ask you, Lord, to help our unbelief. Teach us as a people what it means to believe you in the midst of our storms. Lord, we, we praise you that you are Lord of the storm. We wish to pass the test of faith to grow in maturity. I pray right now, Lord, you'll minister to someone who's in the midst of a storm. Minister hope. Give them these handles, Lord, deep in their hearts to hold on to in the midst of the storm. As our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.